Let's pray together. Lord, these last few moments, we have reminded ourselves that you are a strong and mighty God. That you are a warrior who comes to win the battle. At the same time, you are a tender, heavenly Father. So this morning, as we look to your word, Lord, would you show us yourself strong and tender and good and true. Help us to hear your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Well, so Apple unveiled their new iPhone this week. It was a two-hour extravaganza from their new headquarters in California. And as I was hearing about that, I didn't watch that, but as I was hearing it, I, I recall the simpler time when they first introduced the Mac. Maybe some of you remember these commercials. Hello, I'm a Mac. I'm a PC. Oh, hey, iPod. Nice. Yeah, it's just a little something to hold my slow jams. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and it works so seamlessly with iTunes. You should check out iMovie, iPhoto, iWeb, because they all work like iTunes. You know, I like this. Comes out every Mac. I like this. Well, I, I have some pretty cool apps that are bundled with me. Oh, like, what do you, what do you got? Calculator. Cool. Anything else? Clock. Sounds like, yeah. sounds like hours of fun. Yeah. Right, that's <laughs> There were 66 of those that they did comparing the features and the capabilities of the Mac. We love to compare stuff. We compare stuff all the time. We love for rankings like football polls. Just for fun, this past we got Google Top 10, 207 million results. <laughs> top 10, places to retire, mutual funds, golf breeds, cycling and Pinterest, beaches, vacation deals, fruit sales, you lose weight, coffee shops, independent bookstores, roller coasters, and 206,997,000 more of those all there together. One of our young adults, college students, Rachel Phelps, published a piece on the WKU Talisman website this week. It was a complete and unauthorized ranking of every gas donut. <laughs> she and two of her friends, and she said a lot of 2% milk. Strawberry cake was number one by their ranking, just so you know where that was. These sort of comparative lists are interesting to us. They're, they're rarely scientific or purely objective. They're often on the preferences of an individual or a, a small group. But you and I love to compare things. We don't compare stuff, though. We compare us. We compare ourselves with others. So we compare ourselves physically or stylistically or financially or materially or vocationally or technologically. Now, why do we do that? We do that so we see where we stack up and also where we Psychologists call this mirroring. We want to find those who share our values, those who process life the same way that we do. So we can, that's how we make friends, how we kind of find our, our tribe. Well, that's part of the reason we do this, because we're so we'll decide who we're going to be as we're kind of comparing ourselves to others. Now, now we think about that in middle school, too, that's just that, that peer pressure. But that comparison thing really sort of sticks around throughout all of life. But what we find is this. That who or what we compare ourselves to, what we measure our life by, has the power really to shape our entire life. And since that's true, it's crucial for us to understand the truth of the standard that we're using to measure our life. So a comparison you see can shape a life positively, uh, like, a, like a teacher who's helpful, or a business mentor, or, or maybe an issue that motivates in some way. But but a comparison can also shape us negatively. Because think about it, what if you're, you're measuring with the wrong thing or, or by the wrong person? So if you're, if you're making a, a recipe and you get mixed up between a, a dash and a cup, it's going to not go well for you, right? 
a child given a choice will often choose a hundred shiny new pennies rather than a five dollar bill because they're measuring by the number and the shiny rather than by the value. And sometimes we can do the same thing. We can number by what appears to us as the shiny thing, the thing that's out there and it gets us in trouble. Now this understanding what truth we're measuring ourselves by concerns us spiritually as well. As disciples of Jesus Christ. We're disciples. Now, yes, it means we're followers. But it's more than that. It means we're becoming like Him. Throughout this year, we've been talking about how life is better together. And this month, we're talking about growing spiritually is better together. And that means we're growing up, we're maturing spiritually, that we're becoming more and more like Jesus. And that happens individually, but it also happens in community together. This is described well for us in Ephesians 4. He says this, we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ, growing in every way more and more like Christ. That's the goal of growing up. That's the goal of spiritual growth, to grow more and more like Christ. We said, well, how are we going to help each other do that? Well, last week, we said we'd do that by helping each other grow by teaching the truth of the Word of God. This week, we want to talk about helping each other grow like Christ by understanding the truth about ourselves. We're going to get really real about this whole idea of comparison, because we can't separate the fact that our faithful life as disciples of Jesus we can't separate that from the people or the standards we're using to measure our life or to measure our faith because it really is true. Who or what we compare ourselves to as disciples, how we measure our spiritual life has the power to shape our entire spiritual life. Now, even apostles really were immune to this challenge of comparison. Paul faced it in his relationship with the believers at, at Corinth. He had lots of visits there. He planted the church there. He wrote letters back and forth. We're going to be in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. So if you have your copy of the New Testament, go ahead and turn there to 2 Corinthians. I want you to be in chapter 10. If you don't have a copy of the Bible with you, there's a black heart down one there in front of you. We encourage you to follow along with us there. While you're turning, let me kind of tell you what's going on. Paul has has preached the gospel there in this rather cosmopolitan pagan city, and a, and a church forms. And Paul leaves, and they continue on with his mission. But then he receives word the folks there had had formed kind of a um, well, it was kind of a fantasy pastor league. <laughs> Here's the pastor I follow. I, 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 I follow Paul, or I follow Apollo, or Paulus, or I follow uh, Peter, or I follow Christ. And he wrote it back, and he said, "Hey, just stop it." That's not mature. It's not the way we do this. So time goes by. He still has a visit. Paul's on mission, unable to come by. And some leaders there in the church began to challenge Paul's authority by comparing themselves to him, by raising questions about Paul's, uh, Paul's character, his methods, his support, his spirituality, his writing, his preaching. Even his appearance, one thing they said was this, is that his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. They're discounting Paul. So one of the major themes of the book of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending and his ministry responding to these comparisons that are being raised. Right at the beginning in chapter 2, he says this, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need some new letters of recommendation to you or from you? You can hear that whole comparison Thing. And he really hones down in chapter 10, 11, and 12. He's just really making that 
come alive and really sinking down into that. So if you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word, Tyler Manlow is going to come and read for us this morning our scripture. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Tyler's going to come and read for us uh, just one verse we want to look at to kind of set the tone for this. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 12. I would read God's Word for us. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, Tyler. Now, you hear that, and until now, a lot of one of those we've talked about across this year have been very positive, haven't they? Love one another, encourage one another, be hospitable to one another, over and over. But the tone here is very different because he wants them to understand carefully <clears throat> what truth they're measuring their spiritual life by. Because he knows what we compare ourselves to, what we measure ourselves by, has the power to shape our whole life. So the first thing he wants to notice is this that we help one another grow better together when we understand that comparison with others is soul distorting. Comparison with others is so distorted. Now there in verse 12, he begins by, by addressing these comparisons of his opponents. And you can almost hear Paul's sarcasm here in verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. You go on to chapter 11, he says, we wouldn't compare ourselves with those who are so-called super apostles. And you kind of get the sense that Paul has just taken about all he can stand of their puffed up view. And he has decided to be the pen in their balloon. And he's going to take them out and work with that. So he said, look, they're measuring themselves by themselves. Now, we can eyeball things, kind of get an idea, but if I'm going to get an accurate rule, I've got to have an objective external standard in order to measure something. So if I want to figure out how big, how many square feet are up here on this stage, if I don't have a lot of experience in that, if I'm not a builder or something, I can sort of eyeball it and maybe guess. But if I'm going to get an accurate ruling. I, I've got to get a tape measure out of it and exactly something external to me. But here, what they're doing is very subjective. They're like the kid who says, hey, mom, I know I'm taller than you. You now, let's measure it. So he stands back to back to his mom and he puts his hand here and then he says, see, I'm taller than you, right? He's measuring himself by himself. So they're saying, hey, we're going to become our own ruler. The standard of Christian living is on us. The things we like and approve are right, good, and Jesus-y, and the things we don't are not. It's a good thing. Not only that, he says, they are commending themselves. They, they compare themselves one with another, and they com- commend themselves for how spiritually mature they are, how, how they fit perfectly what is right and good. Now, notice, it's a closed system here. They make the rules about what's best, and they applaud themselves because they, they kept the rules that they themselves made. Now, here's the way to describe this. <clears throat> Let's say you have a friend who says to you, look, I'm such a good basketball player. I can dunk the basketball over Michael Jordan. <clears throat> you say, no, you can't. There's no possible way you can dunk a basketball over Michael Jordan. So, look, I know Michael Jordan personally. I can do this. I'm telling you, I'm, he's coming to my house this weekend. And so you come to my house this weekend. I'm going to show you I can dunk a basketball over Michael Jordan. So you show up at his house on Saturday morning. And he comes to his driveway and there's a basketball goal. And the first thing he knows that a basketball goal is a seven-foot goal. And then he says, let me introduce you to Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan is the ten-year-old kid who lives at the end of the cul-de-sac. And so we're playing, and yeah, he's going to dunk on Michael Jordan 
on the seventh foot go. You see what he's done? He's redefined everything. He's made the measures. He's committed himself. It's all a closed system that is there. And Paul says, look, that just proves, like he says, that they're without understanding. It doesn't fit. It distorts what Jesus calls us to live as disciples. Okay, well, how does that, how does that apply to you and to me? I want to go spiritually. I want to compare myself with people whose faith I admire. I want to compare myself to something that helps me see how am I doing, how am I measuring up in my growth like Jesus. Now, that can be really positive. If you have a relationship with somebody that's in a, a really Jesus-centered relationship, that's great. Or it can be negative if a certain lifestyle or list or system or experience becomes the center of everything. Because at that point, Jesus becomes filtered through what they say what they teach, what they think. Uh, my first 70 years of, of ministry were in music and worship ministry. As I began to transition to pastoral ministry, uh, Paula at that time was involved with a, a Bible teaching ministry, a, a lady in Birmingham named Debbie Woods. She was kind of like Beth Moore, before it was a Beth Moore. And, uh, and uh, she offered to pray for us. So we drove over, we lived in Atlanta, we drove over to Birmingham one day, and so we walk in, so I'm going to pray for you guys this morning, and I have a word, I think, from the Lord for you. I want to encourage you as you begin this new season of your ministry to beware of giving in to the power of they. Of listening and saying, oh, they say, they oppose, they like, they prefer, their list, their system, their way, their experience. If you're not careful, they will begin to control you and your faith and your ministry will shrivel as you begin to do that. So why was that? Why would that be true? Isn't that exactly what happened in Eden? Here's Adam and Eve. They're in paradise, and they're enticed with a comparison. Serpent comes, and everything is distorted. So the shine of one piece of fruit blinded them to paradise and the very glory of God Himself. And so we begin to say, okay, there's a comparison that's not got a good thing here. So here's what I want to think about for a few minutes. What sorts of comparisons can begin distorting our walk with Jesus? Well, I'm comparing, saying, how am I doing? Well, let's look at these. Sometimes we may compare ourselves to community standards. In other words, I'm going to look around and see the people that are in my part of the world, how are they living for Jesus? How are they following Jesus? And I'll kind of order my life exactly the same way they do. Well, that may go okay, but in 2006, a sociologist and researcher named Christian Smith did a massive study of the spiritual life of American young people, and, and he found the most common version of Christian faith that they were living in, that they had been taught by those in the generations ahead of them, was what he called moralistic, therapeutic deism. Let me translate that. He says, here's the thing of Christian faith. The Christian faith is moralistic, be good, therapeutic, be happy, deism, find some spirituality. Just make it up. Be good, be happy, be spiritual. Now, i got to tell you, in the Bible Belt, we wear this out. Because we're good people here. We're good people. We work hard. We, we give ourselves to our jobs. We love our families. We, we do our kids, and we run them to here and there and everywhere. Our lives kind of spin around. We're, we're good neighbors. We keep our lives spinning. We go to church on Sunday as much as we can. Give a little money. We give thumbs up on Facebook to all the good Jesus stuff. Thumbs down all the bad liberal stuff. And we do more and do better. Keep it on spinning as we're going. I'm going to live life like everybody else. I'm just going to sprinkle a little Jesus, and that'll be fine. Listen. 
there's no cross or resurrection in that. There's just my best effort of being a nice person with some religion that's going. It begins to distort what Jesus meant as a disciple of Jesus. Some of us may compare ourselves with some key spiritual externals. And this is especially true of, of type A's who want to get everything just right. So I'm going to get it just right. I, I'm going to speak the Christian language. I'm going to learn to speak the Christian language just right. I'm going to learn how to do that whole Christian uh, hum thing when we pray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to learn how to do that because that's what Christian people do. I'm going to study all the right Bible studies. I'm going to fill in all the blanks. I'm going to get the right Bible study teachers. I'm going to refer to them because I know that's what people that are really committed to. I'm going to be involved on the right side of social issues with those around me, and that's going to be where I'm going to smile a lot. And I'm going to display all these things, and that way everybody will know I'm doing Jesus right as long as I can check all this list of things off. Do you know one of the, one of the, the biggest contributors to women's struggle with body image? It's, it's Photoshop. Listen, nobody's skin is that flawless. Nobody's waist is that cut. But there's an ideal of beauty that's being held up, and women getting very, very young, pre-middle school, young girls and women are starving themselves, shaming themselves, because they don't match the standard that screams from every magazine cover. They're spending thousands of dollars on price and promises to get them there. It's a false image by which they're gauging themselves. Sometimes, comparison with all these systems and all these checklists of things that are supposed to be the right Christian things can press us to Photoshop our faith. We, we, can, we don't want anybody to see that wrinkle, that blemish, that spot that's not together. So I'll mask it. I'll hide it. I'll hide my doubts. I'll hide my anger. I'll hide the sin that's eating my lunch. So what you see looks great. The stuff in praise Jesus. It looks wonderful. Now listen, there's no honesty with that. It's just kind of an institutionalized, exhausted hypocrisy that keeps the real me from the real you. And it's not what Jesus had in in mind. Uh, some of us will compare ourselves to a view of Christianity that is all triumph and laughter. Some hold that Jesus only means us just to prosper in all things. Prosper our health, prosper our relationships, prosper our vocation or our job. And it shows a bad idea. It shows up in the phrases that we slap on coffee cups and then we find and we put around some place. And all these, these great phrases, and they're all from the Bible. My God will meet all your needs by his riches. God works all things together for good. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Bless the Lord, all my soul, forget not all his benefits. Hashtag blessed. We have all those things, right? Those are all true, but they're an incomplete description of reality. You know what nobody puts on a coffee mug? Here's what I put on a coffee mug. Bless are you and others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Huh. Jesus said that. This is what flourishing in your spiritual life looks like. He said it's not all daffodils and cotton candy. That it may be painful and costly to follow Jesus. Entire societies, entire cultures may reject it, may not want those ways, may try to take it out in that way. And it's not, we're not going to be ready if all we're thinking through is that all is all happy, 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 joy, joy all the time. 
We're not ready when the real stuff hits because there's no sense of enduring here. There's no sense of living and giving myself for something worth losing everything for. If I just keep my head down, go along, no waves, stay safe. But that's not really what Jesus had in mind. Some of us may compare ourselves to a certain emotional experience of faith. Some build kind of build their faith on on these experiences, remarkable experiences at a conference or retreat or a, a concert or a camp. And God can and does use those moments to bring people to faith in Jesus, to jumpstart adult faith, to bring encouragement, to stir the heart, to feel the presence of God deeply. The problem comes. We begin to approach our life as a disciple that makes those experiences the norm. To build them in as the regular thing. So here, here's what happens. You go to the conference or retreat, the concert or whatever, you get thrilled, you get inspired, you get energized, and it kind of keeps you going for a few weeks, and then it sort of begins to fade. And just the normal Christian experience of just reading your Bible and praying and being involved in the community doesn't seem to produce that same kind of kind of jump. You go back to another concert retreat experience of some sort, and you get thrilled, inspired, and energized, and it goes for a while, and then it begins to fade because the normal everyday thing of just reading the Bible and praying and being involved in the community doesn't really seem to get it. So I might get another one, but it's sort of like an addiction. The problem is, is that you have to continue to have more thrill, more energy, more inspiration to get the same high. And so we live an entire Christian life. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual trampoline. It's going to bounce from one high experience to the next. There's no stability. There's no deep roots in the truth of God's Word. This is frothy, kind of sugar high of emotion. It's not, not the way it was. It was just how we can compare ourselves compare ourselves with some sense of approval. And I think this is really the core of the problem. When comparison gets to take over, I so badly want to measure up. I want to measure up to what somebody's told me the Christian life's supposed to be. I want to measure up what my hero says and what their faith looks like. I want to measure up and be approved. I want to be accepted by those. And I want to do whatever it takes to be accepted by they, those people with all those systems, with all those experiences, all those emotions. Here's the thing. What if I can't do it? What, what, if, I, what if I really struggle and, and they still want for What will that produce? One thing it produces is failure and shame. There's a movie coming out next week or so called Brad's Status. There's a movie Ben Stiller plays a guy named Brad Sloan who's accompanying his son on a college tour and begins to reflect on what happened to his college friends. Brad runs a nonprofit. And he compares himself to his friends who are fabulously wealthy or famous uh, or successful or all of the above. And so he's tossing and turning at night, and the voiceover, he says this, It's stupid to compare lives, but when I do, I feel somehow I failed. And over time, these feelings get worse. We do the same thing with our spiritual lives. We just might say, Boy, they know the Bible so well. I don't know the Bible that well by now. They seem to serve so effectively. They have the church as long as I have, and they're serving and leading in a, a more visible way. And they demonstrate peace and contentment to me. And they, they, they train their child, and their children are still walking with Jesus. They might have kind of gone off the rails a little bit. And what's going on? And a little anything in your head that it's stupid to compare lives, spiritual lives. But when I do, I feel somehow I fail. It begins to produce failure and shame. It can begin to, beyond that, produce lies and falsehood. When I was a child, 
third or fourth grade, I guess, I overheard my parents one night talking about my slightly older cousin in Louisville who had uh, uh, been identified as gifted and was going to have some special academic opportunities. As I laid in my bed and listened, there was a tone of admiration and pride and approval in their voices that I quite honestly rarely heard directed toward me, and I so wanted that. So since that time of year when we were doing testing, I crafted this entire narrative about how I had taken our achievement test and I had done so well, the teachers had singled me out for more advanced testing. And I think those tests in the counselor's office. And then that went so well that the principal then called me in from the, the additional conversations. And when I told my parents that I began to hear in their, their voice this, this tone of, of admiration, pride, and approval, but I think it's one level too far. When I told them I've been selected as part of a gifted group of the entire system, as it was me with the superintendent, that's when mom decided she would call and talk to somebody, and that's when the whole thing came off the rails. <laughs> Clearly not gifted at that point. Why did I lie? Because I desperately wanted the approval of they. And listen, we can do that. We, we, we so want people to think we've got our act together spiritually that we, that we make it this whole fantasy spiritual life to share. And there's no grace in that. It's just a scramble to try to measure up and not fail and not screw it up too bad. You see, comparison distorts our view of God's self and others and begins to shrivel our soul because all those things we compare ourselves to, they all have an idea of what your Christian life should be like. And when you begin to measure your faith by that list, by that system, by that experience, by that Bible study, by that emotion, it becomes about conforming to that thing and not to Jesus. And it puts a filter between your soul and the Jesus who you're supposed to be like. So here's what happens. Here's you. Here's the thing you're comparing to, list, person, experience, community, emotion, whatever, right? And here's the Jesus I'm supposed to be like. And all of a sudden, there's this thing in between the two. Now remember, what we compare ourselves to, what we measure our life by, has the power to shape our entire life, our journey as disciples. And this is where the distortion comes in. When those with whom we are comparing our faith or our walk with Jesus are the first thing that comes to our mind, the first thing that strikes our heart more than Jesus himself that begins to distort what Jesus had in mind. So how do we break out of it? In comparison with others, is soul distorting. Let's see this. We help one another grow better together. We understand the comparison with Christ is soul defining. It's soul defining. So, so Paul doesn't stop there. In verse 13 of 2 Corinthians 10, he says, We will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us to reach even to you. Verse 17, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. There's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And look, we're not... We're not going to be about boasting in us. We're not going to be about comparison about us and where we are. We're here to boast in Christ. I was saying it earlier, right? I will not boast in anything except in, in Christ. He's the one we're supposed to be like. He's the one we're supposed to live for. He's the one whose approval and commendation we seek. He's our audience of one. So how does it happen that Jesus Christ comes to commend an ordinary, sinful human being like me or like you. I mean, I got no record to impress him. 
I read in Romans 3, it says, it says this. It says, there is no one righteous that measures up to God's standard. Not even one. No one does good. Not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then I look at Jesus. And Jesus, fully God and fully man, as a human being, he was righteous and he didn't fall short. He lived a perfect human life, the way it was designed to be lived. So on my own, if I compare myself to Jesus, it gets ugly real fast. Because on my own, in my own world, of trying to do it on my own, my life is an offense to God. He created us for his glory. And when I sin, it breaks that relationship. It, it separates us. I'm under penalty. But he has this everlasting love and ferocious mercy. And he came in Christ. He came in person to rescue us. Live the perfect life. And then Romans tells us this, that God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And early in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him, or in Christ, we might become and, and fulfill the standard that God has for our life. Now understand this. Because of Jesus' death, for us, as we trust Him, we are forgiven. We're given a clean record like Jesus. Perfectly righteous. It matches God's standard. Not only that, we're placed into Christ. We're reconciled to God. We're adopted as His family. And because of the resurrection, we're given His life and power to live this. Now, when the Father of glory... The holy God of the ages looks at those who are His, those who have trusted Christ alone. Do you know what He sees? What He sees, now that I'm in Christ, I have Christ's record, He sees His own perfectly righteous Son. He compares us in Christ to His Son, and He sees the same thing. And when He sees His Son, do you know what the Father says? He says this, This is my beloved Son or daughter in whom I am well pleased. I am well pleased. Now let that sink in for a second. Because of Jesus, the God of the ages, looks at those who repented of sin and trusted Christ and says, I look at you and I am well pleased. I approve. Now, now if, if we were Pentecostal, we'd be shot right now. That's okay, right? But because of the good news of Jesus, you can be accepted and completely approved by God. This is true for all who repent and trust Christ. This is what's true about you. This is your position. This is your identity. This is what you need to understand from head to toe if you're going to grow like Jesus. Because catch this, in a relationship with Jesus, catch this, you're not growing Right, in order to be approved, to be for, to get God to accept and approve you. That's not what you're doing. No, on the other hand, here's what's happening. Because of what Jesus has done, you are already accepted and approved by God, which motivates you to grow. You're already accepted and approved by God. That's where it goes. So, so you stand in awe of that grace. You're amazed by it. You're speechless by it. You're stunned by it. You rejoice. You shout. You sing. You weep. And then you know what you do? You Because you're in Christ. Yes, you want to grow. Yes, there's still things we need to do to grow. But when you begin to work spiritually, it is simply to become 
who God already says you are in Jesus. And He promises to strengthen you with the Spirit to live it out. Your position in Jesus is first. Your practice like Jesus follows. Now, remember, it's not as you as an individual. It's us as a faith family. So our job as a faith family together is to help one another understand the implications of that gospel and to begin to live it out. So we talk about the disciples' pathway, a way of living, worship, connect, serve, equip, multiply. We talk about this. We talk about worshiping and gathering. We talk about connecting in groups and serving and, and being equipped and learning more of the Scripture and multiplying and missionaries where we live, work, learn, and play. We talk about those rhythms not to bump up our organizational stats and living home. We do this because this kind of rhythm of life is the environment in which we become more and more like Jesus because it matches who He's called us to be. What can we do for each other? You can just grow in your own faith. When you live a healthy faith, a life centered on, shaped around Jesus, so that you can say to a friend or brother or sister here, follow me as I follow Christ. Because see, here's the thing. My spiritual growth is not for me, it's for you. And your spiritual growth is not just for you, it's for me. We need each other to be growing. And then it really is important to get in connected in some Jesus-centered gospel relationships. It's why we, why we have our connect groups. It's not just a Bible study. We need a relationship there. The middle part, we talk about that with our, our DNA, is to nurture this life together. Here's what I need in those relationships. I need, I need somebody to give me a 360. Somebody to give an, an external perspective to measure rightly around me and ask tough questions. Because I have blind spots where I'm not living out my identity as a son, living by list rather than by love. I, I can begin to buy into these toxic approval patterns where they're living out of the approval of the one. And in those relations, I can take off this mask of spiritual performance, stop managing my image, stop photoshopping in front of everybody, and then even when I'm messy, I can be real and just step out. And here's what we want to do. In our relationships here, we want to encourage each other, listen, to actually live a life that requires a bloody cross and an empty tomb. That's what Jesus means. He says, be a disciple, follow me. If I'm following him, he went to a bloody cross, an empty tomb. Not the same way, but I want to live a life that requires that to have happened for me to live this life at all. Is that, does the life you call Christian require that? It's supposed to. That's what Galatians 2 says. It says, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't want to live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm focused on, centered on, living out of the reality of who Jesus Christ is. And I'm helping others do that. So question remains. When you measure your Christian life, what are you comparing your growth to? Remember, who what we compare to, what we measure our spiritual lives by, has the power to shape our entire spiritual life, our journey as a disciple of Jesus, our enjoyment of Jesus, our effectiveness for Jesus. Are you measuring by somebody else's list, somebody else's system, somebody else's experiences or emotions or approvals? It's a blockade. It's going to shrivel in time. It's not going to grow you or are you measuring your life and helping brothers and sisters here measure their life by Jesus? 
the Jesus whose death rescues you, whose resurrection empowers you, whose grace embraces you, his love assures you, his mission purposes you, his hope secures you, his goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life until you get home. Now that is a life worth living because it's a life that leans hard on Jesus, that leans hard into Jesus and looks more like Jesus every day. That's our standard. That's our measure. That's what we live for, and that's what we help each other live for as a family of faith. Let's stand together and pray together. So as you pray this morning, I wonder what your answer to those questions are. And maybe this morning it would be helpful for you to come and to kneel here. And maybe it's time to maybe repent. Say, Lord, I've been measured by somebody else much more than you. Help me to see you. Maybe it's more you to come and kneel here and just say, thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Accept and approve me in Christ before I take a step of activity. Maybe that's never really grabbed hold of your heart. You've been scrambling and scrambling and scrambling and trying to make God like you. It's not the point of the Christian life. Maybe you seem to come and say, Lord, help me remember grace again. Or it could be that you're here this morning and you've never stepped across that line to trust Christ. You're still outside a relationship with Father. His arms are open wide. Nobody sins too far. Nobody's too broken, too messed up. This love and this grace make me want to come and say, I need you, Jesus. We need him for all that we do. Because we can't do any of this apart from him. So Lord, in these moments, would you help us? to listen to your spirit, help us to respond to you from our hearts, to you how desperately we need you, because we want to know you, we want to be like you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.